Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today is a very special episode of Sepad Pod because I'm joined by my old PhD supervisor, Professor Clive Jones. Clive is Professor of Regional Security in the School of Government and International Affairs at Durham University. He's the author of a number of books and articles pertaining to the contemporary Middle East, focusing in particular on Israeli security and Gulf security. And I'm really excited to talk to Clive about his his intellectual project and and the work that he's done over the the past couple of decades. So, Clive, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Clive, can you tell us a little bit about how you you got interested and involved in, in working on the region, please? Yeah, I mean, it, it really started just after I left school. I, um, before going off to do uh, other things, I decided I wanted to travel a little bit, and I ended up hitching all the way through Europe. And then through Europe, I managed to get to uh, Turkey. Then I went from Turkey into uh, Syria. I went all the way down through Syria into Jordan. And then from Jordan, I crossed over, and this is back in the early 1980s, I crossed over into um, the West Bank, um, the occupied territories. And I was running out of money, and someone suggested to me that if I wanted to earn my ticket home, what I could go and do is work on an Israeli moshav. And the moshav I worked in was a place called Fatsail in the Jordan Valley. And rather than just staying for a couple of months to earn money, I ended up actually staying for far longer. I ended up staying for nearly six, seven months. And I got to work for an Israeli farmer. But many of the workers that he employed, and he did employ them, were Palestinians who would come up from uh, Jericho to help pick fruit and vegetables and so on and so forth. So um, I had this unique experience of hearing the narratives, if you like, from the Israeli side, but at weekends. I would go and visit and stay with Palestinian families in and around the Jericho area. And I really think it's from that experience that the kind of the bug of the Middle East first uh, bit me. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I then came back to uh, the UK. Um, I joined the army. I did what was called a short service commission in the army, uh, which was just over three years. Then I went off to uh, university after the army, and I took various Middle East uh, courses. I then um, went on to do my master's degree in international relations, and then I was rather fortunate in that I managed to gain a scholarship for my PhD, and I went to uh, the Department of International Politics in the University of Wales, Aberystwyth, where I was very lucky to be supervised by somebody I still consider one of the great scholars, not just of the Middle East, but of Islam in particular, James Piscatori. But mm. actually, my PhD was on the mass migration of Jews from the former Soviet Union to Israel. And what I tried to argue in the thesis was that actually, if you look at Israel, most people uh, regard it as a military security dilemma writ large. But I was more interested in looking at the role of uh, of a societal security dilemma, uh, a social security dilemma. And that really was the focus of the thesis. Um, after I got the PhD in 1994-95, I then taught uh, at Aberystwyth for a further year. And then I was lucky enough to land the job at uh, Leeds. I went to Leeds, taught in Leeds for nearly 17 years, and then I came to the University of Durham. Fantastic. Clive, can we 
go back a little bit to that time in in the West Bank and that time traveling through Turkey and Syria. And can you share some some of the memories that you have from that time? Um, sort of political reflections, please. Yeah, I mean, like, Turkey was 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 very brief, um, but going through Syria at the time, um, this was in 1983, 1984. Um, it was. Um, I found it. I mean, I wasn't so politically minded as then as I am today, but I found it a very very strange place. I mean, people were very very welcoming. But going through places, first of all, such as Aleppo, uh, going down to um, places like Palmyra, which was wonderful until it was much of it was unfortunately destroyed by Islamic State. But if we're going to places like Hama, people were always wary. They were always, in a sense, um, wary of the big brother looking over the shoulder. And the big brother was looking over the shoulder yeah, in the course. sense that everywhere that you went, you'd have these huge great murals of Hafiz al-Assad, um, often surrounded by his um, by, by his sons. I mean, Basil was clearly even then was seen as the uh, great inheritor of the, of, 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 of the Ba'athist throne, so to speak. Um, and it was just a sense that everywhere that you went, remember this was only about 18 months after or a year after the a great uprising in Hama by the Muslim Brotherhood, there was a sense of ill at ease. And remember as well, it was at a time when there was, to all intents and purposes, an ongoing uh, war in neighbouring Lebanon, not just in terms of the civil war, but clearly following on from Israel's invasion of Lebanon in 1982. So I guess my abiding memory was of a very, very beautiful country, very open people when you got to talk to them on a kind of a one-to-one basis, or you got out into the villages between the towns. But in the towns itself, a sense that they're, you know, in a very Orwellian sense, that Big Brother was actually watching you. When I crossed the border over into um, Jordan, that was very, very different. I mean, people were, again, welcoming, incredibly friendly. Um, uh, I always found the Jordanians anyway as a people, be they from a Palestinian background, Palestinian heritage, or indeed from the from the various East Bank tribes, to be incredibly welcoming. But again, I mean, I was there really just as a tourist, and I sort of, you know, they wanted to see the great tourist sites. I wanted to see... You know, being the true Orientalist, went down to see uh, Lawrence's Well in Wadi Ran. Went to <laughs> sure. uh, went to go and see um, the great uh, uh, Monet, uh, the great treasury in uh, in Petra. Went all the way down to Aqaba. Um, but it's at that point that I, I then looked to head to the Allenby Bridge and cross over the Allenby Bridge into the into the West Bank. Great. And what was that like crossing over at that point? What was the what was the border like between the two? It was actually fairly, it was fairly easy, it was fairly friendly. Um, I don't remember, I mean, we, we were talking now almost 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, perhaps even 40 years ago. Um, I don't remember it being in any sense, shape or form um, aggressive or, you know, the security authorities on either side of the bridge making life difficult for me. Or the only thing that I couldn't do in those days was, of course, cross back in to Jordan itself. So once I was over the Allenby Bridge and I was on the Israeli stroke Palestinian side, um, I knew I knew that was it. But I had been given um, an address and I was told that if I went to this particular address, then um, I could get work on uh, on an Israeli moshav called Fatsel. In fact, it was one of the first agricultural settlements that had been established on the line of the Jordan River following the, the capture and occupation of the um, of the West Bank in in 1967. 
Right, sure. So, so lots of interesting reflections, in, and I apologize. We're going back a while. I'm testing your memory here and your sort of personal recollections. Um, so th- that time in Israel must have had quite, a, quite an impact because that provoked you to, to go to, to Rabbi Ristwith and work with, with James Piscatori. Can you tell us a bit about the thesis then? I mean, you, you talked about, about the sort of the Aliyah. So can you tell us a bit about what you were trying to do that was sort of contributing to debates at the time? Well, one of the, whenever you look at most academic studies of Israel, they tend really to focus, at least then in, 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 the, in the 1980s and 1990s, they tend clearly to be a focus upon um, the military side of the confrontation between um, Israel and the surrounding Arab states and, of course, uh, Israel and um, and the Palestinians. Um, but what struck me um, when I was in Israel was actually the cleavages that actually existed within Israeli society. Um, and these cleavages actually had been particularly well known. And I was I was particularly influenced by a book um, by uh, an Israeli peace activist called Adam um, Keller, which was called. Um, 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 social divi- I think it's called Social divi- Divisions and Political Paradoxes um, in Israel. It's, it, it's, it's the one book that I read, actually, that I think had the most profound impact upon why it was I decided that I wanted to become an academic and an academic that certainly focused upon the issue of Israel um, and Palestine. Because in this book, of course, for the first time, what I had seen with my own eyes not just in terms of Israel's relations and occupation of another people, uh, but equally the divisions that existed within Israel itself between, you know, between Ashkenazi, within Mizrahi, um, the, even then the growing power of the settler movement, um, and so on and so forth. And, and this absolutely fascinated me because it seemed to me that this internal dynamic wasn't really being appreciated in terms of how the external understanding of Israel was being fully appreciated by um, academic audiences, not just in, in the UK, but in Europe and elsewhere. And this really, my interest really came at a time as well when we were beginning to see the sort of the collapse of the Soviet Union and increasing numbers of Jews from the former Soviet Union um, making Aliyah to um, Israel. Or I, I should add, there's a, there's a level of instrumentality here because what I discovered from my my research on the thesis was actually that the preference for many, if not most, of the Jews that were leaving the Soviet Union was actually to get visas to go to Israel, but transit through Europe, and then once in Europe, then to head to the United States. This is what had actually happened in the 1970s under limited immigration under Dayton. But the Israelis um, managed to put pressure upon the United States government to prevent various transit centers that had operated in Austria in particular to be closed. So once these increasing numbers of of, of Jews from the former Soviet Union were leaving uh, uh, Russia, the Ukraine, and various other uh, parts of of the, uh, the Soviet Union, they could only go to Israel. But what you're looking at was a mass wave of around 400,000 that came to Israel between 1989 and 1992. And this would have been, you know, the equivalent of 
around 13, 14 million people deciding to up sticks and leave for France, if you look at it in terms of proportion of population. So I knew this was going to have a massive social impact upon a country which was still struggling under the burden of the, of the first intifada, yeah. was uh, struggling and had struggled with hyperinflation. And what was the impact of this going to be, both in terms of internal Israeli politics and in terms of uh, the relations with the Palestinians? And it's, it's fascinating to see you tracing some of those ideas across your across your career, albeit in, in different ways, not necessarily just focusing on on the the sort of social integration of these of these Russians that have that made the Aliyah. Um, now one of my favorite pieces of, of your work is is a piece that you um, that you wrote in Asian Affairs, What's Left of the Left in Israel. Yeah. And um, I, I think, yeah, it's really interesting to see you tracing all of these these different themes that that you obviously experienced firsthand and then then engaged with in different ways in your in your thesis can you can you tell us a little bit about how you think israeli politics and these these different schisms and cleavages have have evolved i mean i remember reading a piece on a course that you taught about israel's culture camp i wonder if you could, yeah can you say a little bit about how that's evolved from when you first started working on it please well, the idea of the Kulterkampf um, was really, I mean, clearly it, it's taken from um, the Kulterkampf, the idea of the Kulterkampf that had existed in, in Bismarck's Germany, which is following unification and, and, the, and the struggle between the state and, and what was then the church, the Catholic church. In the case of Israel, this is very much the, the idea that increasingly, particularly under its pure system of proportional representation, and given the kind of the demographic shifts that have taken place in Israeli society, particularly amongst the Haredi community, the ultra-Orthodox community, that um, religious parties and were able to gain uh, powerful government portfolios in which they were able to inculcate their notions of what it meant to be, indeed not even an Israeli, but what it meant to be Jewish. And it was often said, for example, one, one of the things that I came across when I was doing my PhD research, and I interviewed um, a lot of people in terms of the difficulties they had found in uh, uh, integrating into Israeli society. And the big issue for many of the Soviet Jews was that although they had been able to emigrate to Israel under the, under the law of return, because the Ministry of the Interior at the time was held by Shas, which was an ultra-Orthodox party, they weren't recognized in the religious sense of being Jews. And this created huge difficulties in terms of uh, access to various... Uh, um, funds um, to ease the process of integration itself. And indeed, for example, just give one really, really, really simple example where a sense of alienation was felt by many Russian Jews was the fact that because Israel doesn't have public transportation on Shabbat, many of these new immigrants were in um, uh, were housed in uh, caravans. They didn't own private cars. How could they? Because they were they were resource poor. They brought very little with them from the from the Soviet Union. So on the one day of the week when they weren't trying to cram in Hebrew lessons or, or panim, that was the opportunity for them to go and actually see the country that they had immigrated to. But they couldn't because there was no public transport. Yeah. So that sort of fed into a sense of of, of broader social um, alienation, and increased amongst many, many Russian Jews, a profound sense of dismay and indeed opposition and anger 
against the religious parties. Now, fast forward to where we are today and the current crisis, political crisis in Israel, the upcoming elections in September. What has been the key issue that has forced uh, many Israelis back to the ballot box is the power that the ultra-Orthodox parties actually have to determine not just lifestyle choices for many Israelis, but equally, and this is where Abidor Lieberman, who heads the Russian party, Yisrael Betanu, it has been this sense that the ultra-Orthodox, through the power that they exercise in the political system and their growing demographic, can choose how and when to engage with the state. And we see this most visibly over the issue to do with service in the military. And that's actually what has brought down Netanyahu's government or will likely bring down Netanyahu's government is this simple issue which resonates across so many other Israelis that why should they pay high, relatively high taxation, so three years in the military, many of them have to do reserve service every year, and yet the ultra-Orthodox, whose lifestyle is subsidized by the state, most of the men will study in a, in a yeshiva, they don't learn practical skills, why should they basically feed off to put it crudely, the fat of the land. And I think this kind of notion of a cult account is something that is embedded and continues to develop, I think, within the Israeli body politic. And it's actually very difficult to see how any political party that wants to achieve power in Israel can really deal with this without necessarily having to make compromises, which clearly will create even further cleavages within Israeli society. Sure. It's fascinating. And I certainly am going to keep a close eye on on, on the, the upcoming elections and, and your commentary on that. I'm sure that, that there'll be a lot of interesting things to follow up on. Clive, I remember as I was drawing towards the end of my PhD, we had a conversation and you were, um, you were recalling your desire when you finished to do some writing for a piece, uh, for an article about something so far removed from Israel. I remember you had this this real desire to do something completely different. So what prompted the the move towards the Gulf? Um, I think it, 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 it was partly advice that I received, which is that if you really want to be um, seen as a Middle East expert, you've got to intellectually broaden your wings and demonstrate that you actually have a capacity to intellectually engage with other parts of the region um, itself. Um, And and that was well-meaning advice. I mean, to be perfectly blunt, there are very, very few jobs, certainly in UK academia, let alone anywhere else um, in the global academic community, which purely focus upon the study of of Israel or indeed of uh, of Palestine. So in in one respect, it was a very instrumental decision. It was actually to make myself more marketable, if you like, even though I had a background in international relations, it was to make myself kind of more marketable, if you like, in terms of my broader reach within the Middle East. But equally, I think it was increasingly part and parcel of my own intellectual interest in um, a part of the world which I wanted to find out a lot more about. Um, I had family friends, for example, who in one capacity or another, either in the business or the military, had served out in the Gulf. And I was particularly interested by uh, an old family friend who had for a while served out in what had been Aidan Connolly in the 1950s and the 1960s. So I think it's like a combination of these uh, particular factors. 
Um, and I was certainly encouraged to do so by my uh, supervisor, um, Jim Piscatori. So immediately after sort of finishing my, my PhD, I began a piece which was published in International Relations on um, Saudi Arabia. Um, and I think having done that piece, it, it really did encourage me both um, intellectually, but, but, but also emotionally in many respects, to look more closely at the kind of realignment of power that was taking place in the region um, at the time. Sure. I was actually just speaking about that article, your, your Saudi Arabia article, this morning with one of my Saudi PhD students. So I, I'm <laughs> pleased you mentioned it. Um, I think in, in recent years, you, those two strands of your research on, on Israel, Israeli security and politics, and, and the Gulf have moved sort of closer together. And obviously Iran plays a, a prominent role in, in the, the coming together of those two strands. I mean, leaving aside the historical archival work on, on, the, on the Gulf that we'll talk about in a minute. But yeah. can, you, can you tell us a bit about the, the burgeoning and often complex relationship between Israel and the Gulf states, please? You've written about this in in a couple of areas, but if you can just, just share a few thoughts, please. Yeah, sure. I mean, I it, it really is, is, is a project that first emerged out of, again, it was a, a, a trip to um, Israel. And when I was in Israel, this was back in, I think it was 2014, I read the front um, page of the main Israeli daily, Haaretz, which is kind of the Israeli equivalent of, of The Guardian, I guess. Yeah. And the headline of the paper was um, um, Saudi number plate spotted in Jaffa. Right. And uh, this, the, you know, it, the fact that it made the headlines of a national newspaper in and of, in, in of itself was news, but it was also... Um, I think uh, even then, back in 2014, it was an indication that clearly something behind the scenes was beginning to happen in terms of Israel's relations with the Gulf states. And in fact, the, the story behind the number plate, just very, very briefly, was that uh, an, a Saudi businessman had online struck up a business deal with um, uh, 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 an Arab citizen of Israel living in Jaffa, over the import and export. I can't remember exactly what the import and export was, but in essence had been had driven from Saudi through Jordan um, into uh, Israel proper. Right. And they set up this business thing. So actually it was true. There was this Saudi who driven from Saudi Arabia into in, 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 into Israel proper. Incredible. But actually, but actually I think it was sort of more symbolic in many respects of, of what I be, had begun to understand. And not just from Israelis, but from private conversations with some Gulf Arabs, that relations between the two or between the, 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 the many of the Gulf states and Israel had begun to... Develop. And one of the things that I think was most pronounced was the increasing incidence of what I would call public engagement between retired Israeli security officials and retired, if you want to, for want of a better word, Saudi security um, officials. Right. And at the forefront of this were people like uh, Crown Prince Turki Al Faisal, so who, for example, appeared in an event in Brussels alongside the former head of Israeli military intelligence, um, Amos Yadlin. So there was this sudden outbreak, if you like, of 
open, non-state representative engagement. So this got me thinking, and what I did was to go back and look at the types of engagement that had existed between, for example, Israel and uh, Jordan. And what this led me to do was to pick up an idea first articulated by an Israeli academic called Aaron Kleiman, which is how do states which don't have formal diplomatic relations, how do they cooperate on issues related to security? How do they mediate those relationships? And what I did was to develop um, further a construct called the tacit security regime. And it's on the basis of identifying six points within this um, 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 of this tacit security relationship that I began to, uh, and it's drawing on broadly the ideas of regime theory, but to look then at how the relationships that Israel had begun to develop with the Gulf states was beginning to remap and recast. Now, clearly, um, in all of this, the, 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 the key variable was a shared interest in thwarting their perception. And I hasten to add the perception yeah. of Iran's growing power, either through the development of its nuclear program or clearly through the sponsorship of various proxies across much of the Middle East itself. But it's from there that this idea of looking at how Israel um, deals with some of the Gulf states, three in particular, the Saudis, the Emiratis and the Bahrainis, and how they mediate that relationship, what that relationship uh, constitutes that is became the focus of several articles, but it's about to be realised um, in a book to be um, published um, by Hearst and available hopefully from all good booksellers. <laughs> Fantastic. When should we expect that, uh, that book, Clive? Uh, that should come out at the end of November, beginning of December. Exciting. Do you have a title? <laughs> yeah, it's called Fraternal Enemies, Israel and the Gulf Monarchies. <laughs> Perfect. That sounds wonderful. When when do we trace this back to, this this burgeoning rapprochement then? Well, I mean, it's some, it's one of the things that we deal in the book is actually, and it, it won't come as a, a surprise to the listeners, that Israel has always been able um, to actually penetrate uh, much of the Arab world. Much of this, by the way, has been done not by the Israeli Foreign Ministry, but through the Foreign Division of the Israeli intelligence service, the uh, Tevel. One of the things, by the way, we found out, although I had to be, uh, I'll be very circumspect in who told me this, but uh, one of the things that we found out in writing uh, the book was that actually Israel had offered advice, for example, to the Sultan Qaboos in Oman, even as early as 1975, right. in terms of how he could help, how, how he should best defeat uh, the challenge of the um, of the rebels in the Dofar region, who at that time were receiving support from what was then the, the People's Demo Democratic Republic of Yemen in, 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 in the south, and they were obviously coming across the border. Sure, but I think, but I think that you know, um, Israel has always had, in some respects, a hand in with many of the Gulf states, and of course, this was given a boost in the early 1990s by, first of all, the the Oslo Accords and later on by the treaty that Israel signed with the uh, Jordanians. So sure. there have always been these low-level um, ties, but what we're seeing increasingly is that those ties have taken on, if you like, a strategic urgency. Right. I mean, and certainly one of the things that Israel has been able to play very, very well is the um, lead 
and the advantages that it actually has in selling cybersecurity yeah. to many of the states, and in particular to the United Arab Emirates. Interesting. I, I remember doing some some work on this from from the other side. I was looking at Bahrain's um, sort of strategic position vis-a-vis Iran. And, and part of that involved looking at some of the WikiLeaks cables from, well, from the post-Iraq war time. And I, if I remember correctly, it was around 2006, 2007, where, where the Al-Khalifa, the new king, uh, King Hamad, um, he, he declared to an American um, representative that it was time for Bahrain to start repositioning itself vis-a-vis Israel, that it was time to open up formal diplomatic relations with Israel. So it's, it's quite interesting to hear the, the other side of things. And well, well it's, it's interesting that you say that because, I mean, I, I think we actually use some of that material in the book. And one of, one of the arguments that we make is that Bahrain in particular... I think has been used as what we call a bellwether state. That is to say, it tests the water, yeah. and in its wake, it can allow the, the the other its core allies, the Emiratis and the um, and the Saudis in particular, to sort of take those kind of incremental steps. The one thing I would say, however, um, before people leap up and down and say, "Well, you know, there's about to be a you know full-blown diplomatic ties between Israel and the Gulf states," there are clear ideational. Um, issues which I think for the foreseeable future will actually inhibit the establishment of full diplomatic relations. On, yeah. the, on, the, on the Arab Gulf side, it's clearly the emotional pull still of the issue of Palestine and of Jerusalem. I mean, we should remember that for the Arabs, the Arab Peace Initiative, the 2002 Arab Peace Initiative, which is actually a Saudi initiative, is still very much on the table and they're very, very clear that this should be the basis of any future peace deal with the Israelis. On the Israeli side, they know that any future peace deal with the um, Arab Gulf states would require forms of territorial retrenchment and the establishment eventually of some form of Palestinian dispensation and whatever sovereignty may actually look like. And of course, you know, we shouldn't forget that given Israel's own political dispensation and the balance of power, the religious nationalist lobby in Israel is extremely strong. You only go back to 1995, you know, it's a religious nationalist which assassinates Yitzhak Rabin. It would be incredibly difficult for any Israeli government to condone um, the type of territorial compromises required under the API and still remain in power. So that's why we talked about a tacit security regime. It kind of negates the need of either side to make the types of compromises that would be necessary in order to establish full diplomatic relations, while at the same time still realising some of the strategic benefits to be had from um, open diplomatic relations. Sure. And it's fascinating. I'm really looking forward to, to reading this book uh, that I'll get from a good bookstore somewhere in, <laughs> in November or December. So, um, yeah. yeah, I'm very excited about that. Clive, we've taken up a lot of your time, but there's also one last thing I'd like to touch on, and that's another book that you've you've recently written. It sounds like you've been incredibly busy, and that's a book that's coming out shortly with Edinburgh University Press called The Clandestine Lives of Colonel David Smiley, codename Grin. So yes. This is, um, I guess, the other strand of your research, which is the archival sort of historical dimensions yeah, this is, this is, in some respects, if I might be bold enough to say this in a podcast, this is really my labour of love. Right. Uh, 
I, I should I should perhaps just briefly explain. Um, the book really had its genesis in a book I wrote back in 2002 and had a reprint in 2010 um, on um, Britain's and British involvement in the Yemen civil war in the 1960s. And it kind of has a resonance in some respects for what's happening uh, today, because in other guises, we're still doing exactly the same thing. Mm. But as part of the research for this book, um, I look very, very closely at the um, involvement of British mercenaries in helping to train um, royalist forces in Yemen, which were trying to... um, overthrow a Republican government and reinstall the old imamet, uh, which had been deposed in, in 1962. Now, in the course of doing this work, I came across one particular individual, uh, a chap called Colonel David Smiley. And he was heavily involved in advising and training the royalists. And it's actually through him that I kind of made, if you want to say, my, my, my grand breakthrough in, in, in the popular press, was because <laughs> I revealed for the first time that in the in 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 the nineteen mid nineteen sixties, the Israelis, in association with um, this bunch of British mercenaries, um, had been flying covert airdrops all the way down from Israel to the royalist guerrillas in in, in, in in North Yemen. And for Israel, it was very much a sort of a, a, a rational calculation. If they could sure. pin the Egyptian army down in the mountains of Yemen, they were less likely to be able to confront Israel in the Sinai. And indeed, at the time of the June 67 war, still a third of the Israeli, uh, the, the Egyptian uh, military was still bogged down in, in Yemen. And actually, it became their Vietnam. The Egyptians lost four far more troops I think something in the region of about 15,000 in Yemen than they ever did facing the Israelis in Sinai in 1967. But coming from that was this idea that, you know, there was more to this man than, than met the eye. And I got um, talking to him and I actually said, well, look, I really would like to sort of write your biography. And it's from this that I began to do a lot more sort of historical digging. And what I discovered was this was a man who, although he was a regular army officer, he joined the army before the outbreak of the Second World War, was in, if you like, the elite cavalry regiment of the um, of the British Army. He was a man who, in some respects, um, thirsted for action. So he um, joined an organisation in 1943 called the Special Operations Executive. He was parachuted into um, Albania. He fought alongside the Communist partisans led by Enver Hodger. Indeed, he trained them. Right. He was awarded the military cross twice for bravery. He um, then later on was dropped into Siam at the end of the Second World War. He managed to blow himself up with his own bomb. Was very lucky to survive that. <laughs> yeah. When went back in, he liberated various Japanese prison of war camps, in particular the camps where prisoners had been held who had built the the infamous bridge on the River Kwai. Right. Um, After the war, he was recruited into MI6. Uh, He was part of a team that uh, helped sabotage Jewish refugee ships leaving leaving Europe for what was then Palestine, trying to run the British blockade. Perhaps the most controversial episode in many respects of his career. He then was recruited back into MI6 to uh, train Albanian exiles to go back into Albania to uh, overthrow the regime of uh, Enver Hoxha. Um, he believed at the time that the whole operation was blown 
was betrayed by Kim Philby. But actually, as I wrote right in the book, there were other reasons for uh, the failure, including actually poor field security amongst many of those who were involved. He then went on to um, uh, lead uh, the British effort at countering the Saudi-backed insurgency in Oman in the late 1950s, something he, he did very successfully, and ensured that the al dynasty uh, maintained its grip on power, although, by the way, he, ad he advocated very strongly to London that they should remove um, bin Taimor, uh, Kabuti's father, and put him on the throne, yeah. something that the British eventually did in 1970. And then, of course, later on, he becomes involved in, in the Yemen. So really, it's a kind of a story of his life, but through his life, what I've tried to do is to reflect how Britain used intelligence and covert action to try to either sustain influence or defend its interests in parts of the world where there was a clear rise in anti-colonial movements and movements which were which were clearly challenging the um, the interests of the of, of Britain at the time. The broader the broader issue that I try to bring out is actually one about accountability. You know how accountable are those who engage in these types of action, be it the intelligence services or indeed now private military organisations, how, how accountable are they for the actions that they claim yeah. they pursue in our name? And that's really what the uh, actual uh, book is about. Fantastic. You you speak so passionately about it, and I can certainly tell, as I'm sure our listeners can, your your keen eye and keen interest in history that that will no doubt come out through the book. I'm very much looking forward to, to getting a copy and, and delving into it, hopefully some point this summer. Clive? Well, I would, I would, I, I, just, just to interject, sorry, Simon, I'd say that um, wait till it comes out in paperback. At the moment, it's an extortionate price. <laughs> It has just been published, but I would, right. I would, I would say, to say to your listeners, it's due out in paperback uh, around Christmas time. Fantastic. So for a far more reasonable price than it's listed at present. So a stocking filler then, perhaps. It's a, certainly a stocking filler, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Clive, we've taken up so much of your time, but it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you about, about everything that you've done. It's absolutely fascinating. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure, and thank you to your listeners too. Thank you, Clive, and until next time, thanks for listening.